Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, the word is a number of documentaries about the 1921 murderous assault on Tulsa, Oklahoma's prosperous black community, and how the story was not just little known but actively erased, were meeting general disinterest until the TV show Watchmen adapted from Alan Moore's graphic novel, proved that, not to put too fine a point on it, white people could handle hearing the history. The history of how a false assault accusation against a young black man led to a lynch mob and the descent of hundreds of deputized white people on the part of Tulsa known as Black Wall Street, an assault that left this area that represented the success and the hopes of Tulsa's black community a blasted ruin, with hundreds of people dead and hundreds more wounded and scattered. It's no criticism of the TV show, generally credited with handling the harrowing events respectfully, to acknowledge that what white people are comfortable with can't be the criterion for what history is allowed to enter public discourse and to shape it. So while the present reflection on the Tulsa nightmare is welcome and overdue, we might still think about who decides what lessons we take away, given that journalism has been central to public reckoning with Tulsa ever since that late May night 100 years ago. We'll talk about journalism and the Tulsa Massacre with Joseph Torres, co-author of News for All the People, the epic story of race and the American media, and senior director of strategy and engagement at the group Free Press. That's coming up, but we'll take a quick look back at some recent press. Media criticism sometimes involves reading between the lines assessing the layered meanings of journalistic rhetoric, or even considering what's left unsaid in a given conversation. But we shouldn't be numb to all of the times media problems hit you like a sock in the jaw. As when readers opened the Washington Post online recently to find a full-page native ad, that's the kind designed to look like news, from Amazon whose owner, Jeff Bezos, owns The Post and soon MGM, among much else. Blended in with The Post's banner and Democracy Dies in Darkness tagline, readers got text about how Amazon supports a raise in the federal minimum wage and has been paying its workers $15 an hour since 2018. A big picture of an African-American employee and her child talking about how Amazon's generosity is allowing them to move to a bigger home appears. Never mind that, as many could tell you, the company was dragged kicking and screaming to that wage increase. That they continue to fund groups that strenuously oppose a $15 minimum wage, like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. That they have vigorously and vehemently opposed union organizing, and that no wage can justify the dangerous and degrading conditions Amazon is reported to subject many of its workers to. Just as they were selling post readers on the notion that they're lifting folks to a better life, Amazon was being cited by OSHA for a rate of serious workplace injuries nearly double that of other employers. 
a front-page truthy-looking ad about corporate benevolence is surely designed to deflect from such troubling realities. It didn't prevent the paper from reporting on those OSHA findings, though that story contained another kind of weirdness we've come to take for granted, a summary statement that, quote, Amazon declined to make any executives available for interviews on its workplace injury data, close quote. Well, all right then. And in other news to think about, while most people in this country would likely say that democracy requires a free press, evidence suggests we don't think much about how to support that. A piece in Columbia Journalism Review by Victor Picard and Timothy Neff notes what an extreme outlier the U.S. is in terms of funding public media, virtually off the chart. 2020 federal funding of public media amounted to some $465 million, or a buck 40 per capita. The researchers compare that to the UK, Norway, and Sweden, for example, who allot around $100 or more per capita toward public media. That support, research has found, ties directly to well-informed political cultures with high levels of support for and engagement with democratic processes. So again, big picture. In many ways, the wealthiest nation on the planet, the U.S. starves public media infrastructures such that they have to seek funding from corporations and rich people, undermining the whole independent alternative goal of public media. As we see the market failure that's driving local journalism into the ground, that's seen newspaper employees reduced by over 50 percent in the last 20 years, that's disproportionately hurt communities of color while hedge funds devour and dismantle what's left, see, for example, the Chicago Tribune, Picard and Neff say we have to push back and robustly fund public media now and into the future. They reckon adjusting funding levels to match the U.K.'s public support for the BBC at 0.17% of its GDP would translate to about $35 billion for public media spending in the U.S. Estimates are that the 2021 military budget will be around $733 billion, which reminds me of press critic A.J. Liebling often remembered for writing that freedom of the press belongs to the man who owns one. But he also said, quote, it is an anomaly that information, the one thing most necessary to our survival as choosers of our own way, should be a commodity subject to the same merchandising rules as chewing gum, while armament, a secondary instrument of liberty, is a government concern. A man is not free if he cannot see where he is going even if he has a gun to help him get there, close quote. You are listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. The night just passed of May 31st into June 1st marks a deeply painful anniversary in the lives of black Americans, 
Listeners will have heard, some for the first time, of the 1921 massacre in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Eighteen hours of terrible violence in which at least 300 women, men, and children were murdered. Their killings sparked by a newspaper article about a 19-year-old black shoeshiner, Dick Rowland, falsely accused of assaulting a 17-year-old white girl, but kindled by the white supremacy endemic in U.S. society and culture. Businesses, churches, doctor's offices, and groceries in the area known as Black Wall Street or Little Africa were destroyed, along with the homes of more than 10,000 black Tulsans. Afterward, papers like the Tulsa World explained things in ideas listeners will recognize, even if the language is outré. Mayor T.D. Evans was quoted Quoted, let the blame for this Negro uprising lie right where it belongs, on those armed Negroes and their followers who started this trouble and who instigated it. And any persons who seek to put half the blame on the white people are wrong and should be told so in no uncertain language. The newspaper called on the innocent, hardworking, colored element of Tulsa to cooperate fully and with vast enthusiasm with officials and band themselves together for their own protection against this element of non-working, worthless Negroes. And yeah, there's a lot more. So who decides what we know about Tulsa and what we retain of what we're supposedly learning now and then how that changes anything. We're joined now by Joseph Torres, Senior Director of Strategy and Engagement at the group Free Press and co-author with Juan Gonzalez of the crucial book, News for All the People, the epic story of race and the American media. He joins us now by phone from Maryland. Welcome back to Counterspin, Joe Torres. Thank you, Jimmy. Thank you for having me. Well, listeners will feel the thud of recognition to hear that after the massacre in Tulsa, in which 300 overwhelmingly black people were killed and some 800 shot or wounded, the headline of the Tulsa world was, Two Whites Dead in Race Riot. The story of Tulsa, of Greenwood, then as now, is importantly a story about media about what newspapers told people and they believed at the time, and then afterward, what folks were told to remember and told to forget. You wrote about it recently for Free Press, and I would refer listeners to that piece. But talk a little, if you would, about the role of journalism in the Tulsa massacre. Well, the role of, of the, the two main daily papers, the Tulsa World, which was the morning paper, and the Tulsa Tribune afternoon paper, were critical. The Tulsa Tribune, for example, in the so-called light that sparked the massacre, but in the initial days afterwards as well, and, and going forward in the cover-up, making sure the story is basically forgotten in our society. So the Tulsa Tribune was owned by a publisher named Richard Lloyd-Jones. And in his book about the Tulsa massacre, called when we think about white power structures in our society, when we think about hierarchies and white racial hierarchies in the society, the media companies are a part of that system, always have been. And this was a case in point. So 
The paper is very sympathetic. The Tulsa Tribune to the KKK basically prints an advertisement about the KKK plans to come into Oklahoma. And then it focuses its coverage more so in May on issues of crime and criminality. They normally ignored black folks in Tulsa unless it dealt with crime. Mm -hmm. But they started focusing more on a campaign of like black lawlessness in Greenwood, the Greenwood district. But the night, uh, as you mentioned in the intro, the May 31st headline of the false attack of Vic Rowland on a, a white teenage girl lights the spark that results in a white mob heading down to the courthouse to demand that Rowland be handed over to him and, and basically lynched. Mm-hmm. There's an editorial that many to believe was actually published in that paper as well that was predicting a lynching that night. But that editorial in years later, and also that front page story about the alleged rape, disappeared from the microfilm when they were to recorded the paper for historical purposes. But eyewitnesses and folks who were alive at the time remember that editorial. Right. So the idea that there was this daily news story that was very sensational in its details of this alleged rape, and then predicting the lynching that night lit the match thousands of white folks actually going to the courthouse. And the massacre itself, thousands of white people invaded Greenwood and torched the whole place. And then following that, the Tulsa world, which is still in existence today, is still a daily paper in Tulsa. All this language, both papers are saying bad N-word. You know, we got to get rid of these bad N-words in their community, right? Right. It was a purposeful attempt to blame black folks because what happened as well, the last important detail is that there was never a person who was lynched in Tulsa, I believe it was black to that point. And so, so black residents grabbed their arms, a lot of them were former World War I veterans, and they went down to the courthouse and asked the police if they needed help to protect the Rowland from being lynched. They were declined twice. And so the newspapers blamed black folks who brought their gun to try to protect someone from being lynched as the agitators of this. And that's how they framed it. It was the black community that was the reason this happened. And it brought great shame on Tulsa. Now the Tulsa white community was responding in kind and trying to rebuild and black folks need to be very appreciative of this effort and get rid of, as you were mentioning, those leaders that they followed. And a lot of these leaders, including two black newspapers were burned down too as well. The Tulsa Star and Oklahoma Sun. A.J. Smitherman was a very prominent member of the black community and Tulsa, a very powerful person. And he eventually, uh, he fled the state because he was actually charged. The black folks in the community were charged for instigating the massacre. And A.J. Smithman actually settled down and he left the state and he printed papers in Buffalo, New York, where he died. Well, you know, you talk about the erasing of the incendiary editorial, and there's been a kind of general erasure of what happened in Tulsa. It's kind of strange to hear folks saying the little known, you know, this invisible history. And I think, well, you know, I know a lot of black people who've been knowing about Tulsa, you know, but it's true that it is more widely speaking, or among white people, it is hidden history. And that has something to do with media, too. I mean, there's just been a lot of silence around this story. Yeah, it was an intentional campaign. The Tulsa Tribune, which no longer exists, 
didn't mention the massacre until 50 years later. There was efforts to, to cover it up. There was this white reporter back in 1971 who was asked, ironically, by the Tulsa Chamber of Commerce to write something and commemorate what happened on the 50th anniversary. He started researching this story, and he started getting basically threatened by strangers that would approach him on the street and tell them not to write the story, calls to his house. Someone wrote on his car windshield with a bar of soap, better look under your hood, I believe it was written, right? Wow. One of the things he stated in interviews is that there were still people who are alive who might be very prominent members of the community who actually took part in the massacre. And if you just think about it, the children of those folks who took thousands of people literally took part in this massacre. The everyday folks in Tulsa and the police deputized. Meanwhile, they declined black folks from trying to protect Dick Rowland, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they deputized white folks to go into Greenwood, set the place on fire, which we did, and then they put thousands of black folks in concentration camps for following that. They just rounded up everybody. And so a lot of these folks children still may be alive as well, and grandchildren. So there's, you can see how a cover-up happens, right? Because it implicates the powers that be in the city are going to be totally implicated. And for the newspaper, obviously, they played a role. They played a role in it. As a matter of fact, when the publisher died, there was no mention of it in the paper at all when he died of their own paper, like his role in the Tulsa massacre. So this is how it happens. And, and how is this really different than when the Kohana Jones is going through and the issue of Tanya in North Carolina and all this attack against critical race theory? It's all the same thing. We have to keep that stuff buried in the past and not remember it because you remember it, let's say, it's a potential that you have to, when you reconcile with something, it's going to be a call for repair, yeah. right? Yep. And folks don't want to address the repair part, like what does reparations look like? How do you make a community whole? like Greenwood, right? It was a community that was self-sustaining, that had everything it needed in that community. And it was destroyed. Again, you need a narrative, right? That's the whole thing with media. Like, you need narratives. You need narratives to dehumanize people. You need narratives to justify the massacre of people. And then you need narratives to talk about how white folks in this community were coming to the aid of those who were harmed. And they're the ones who are like the heroes and the narratives. And often not telling the story is not only the narrative to, to give you political cover, but then not telling the story is another way of just total erasure, right? Absolutely. Of course. Yeah. It's still going on. You know, this whole 1619 struggle with uh, just to recognizing very basic facts in our nation's history. And you can see the backlash because, you know, at the end of the day, in my personal opinion, the question is whether it's like a multiracial democracy, which democracy has never been fully realized, is it actually possible, right? <laughs> and when you have to reconcile with these stories and history, it's going to, of course, be called for repair, <laughs> you know? And that's one thing we don't want to do as a country, right? You want to, want to repair. I believe even Joe Biden, correct me if I'm wrong, yesterday when he went to Tulsa, he didn't mention anything about reparations. For, and then three living survivors, three black folks who, uh, who are 107, 106, and 100 who survived the massacre, and one of them, Ms. Fletcher yep. testified in Congress that she is still financially struggling, you know? Viola Ford Fletcher, 107 years old. Yeah. She was seven, saying she yep. slept with the lights on ever since because if I don't have the lights on, how how will I see to get out of my house? You know, like, I just, 
it's too much. It's too much to even get your brain around the harm. And it's living history, you know. So I I just want to come back to that question of bringing it into the present because, okay, right now, there's stories on stories on this, you know. Some are folks like Deneen Brown, who's been on it for decades, right? And then... Okay, here's the Wall Street Journal talking about multi-generational reverberations on family wealth in Tulsa. Here's USA Today talking about how, oh, you know, it's not just Tulsa. Racist mobs, that's their language, have been a widespread and constant concern. We've got TV projects with LeBron James. We've got curricula. Mm. All right, so everybody who is invested in wanting this country to change knows that you take your shot when there's an opening. You know, we need understanding all the time, but you take your shot where there's an opening. But right now, it seems like we're saying, look at Tulsa. It's an example of the depth and the breadth of the hatred, of the intergenerational harm, of the lie and of the silencing and gaslighting and censoring. And I fear that what some folks are taking via the media is Tulsa. What a crazy, exceptional episode in U.S. history. You know, thank goodness we aren't like that anymore. It matters not just to tell the story, but to show that it's not just story, you know. Um, And and so I'm just wondering, like, I'm not negative on it. I appreciate the attention. Yeah. I appreciate the spotlight. My question is, like, what's going to be left behind when media move away, when they're not talking about Watchmen, when they move away from the story of Tulsa? What's going to be the sediment? What's going to be learned from it? Yeah, that's the thing. I feel privileged and honored to be able to work on a project called Media 2070 that the Black Hawkers at Free Press created that's calling for media reparations for the black community. And the thing, a part of reparations is reconciling and repair. For us, for myself, speaking for myself, you know, the idea that we have to address narrative in the history of anti-black racism in, in the media system and narrative, narrative that's been intentionally weaponized in order to further white racial hierarchies in society. When we think about the federal government now, when we think about broadcasting, we think about broadband, it's been a policy of exclusion. It's been a policy of excluding black folks and other communities of color from ownership of our nation's infrastructure. Powerful institutions have been created by using our public airwaves, by the roads that we dig up and, and, and the broadband that we lay underneath the ground and that our rights away have been used to generate great wealth and cause great harm to our communities by the stories that these institutions tell. Media 2070, which of is a project that I'm also a part of. Yes. I mean, it it begins at least with a dialogue and with an understanding. Uh, corporate news media are forever telling us we're doing a racial reckoning in this country. And you think, well, what does that mean, an actual reckoning? You know, it has to mean a really dry-eyed, clear conversation that includes actual history and not whitewashed history. And that's why I think Tulsa is you know, a chance for for news media to say, like, how seriously are you going to do this? Are you going to really tell the truth? Are you going to really lift this up and continue to acknowledge the lessons that come from this? Or are you going to say, 
this is a weird exception that happened in history and we're only going to remember it now because it's the 100th anniversary and we're going to, yeah. you know. And yeah. You know how this stuff often works. People are much more comfortable with stuff that happened in the past, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to dealing with their own, you know, the news media has to deal with their own hierarchies. You know, the, the idea of like, of the year since George Floyd as well, the racial uprising that began to happen last year, including newspapers like the New York Times and the Tom Cotton uh, editorial and the Philadelphia Inquirer, firing this editor after the whole Buildings Matter two headline. Right. The idea is that you know news institutions are invested in a white racial hierarchy, and so it's difficult for them to want to address anti-black racism when they have to address their own hierarchies. And so we have to do that to reduce harm, right? But also, can we also dream of a world where we have an abundance of resources that fund Black-owned media platforms that control the creation and distribution of their own narratives and that are tethered to serving their community? Like, we have to dream of these possibilities while also trying to prevent further harm from happening from these institutions that continue to harm us. It's always a struggle to hold folks accountable, to hold institutions accountable. That's kind of what we have to continue to do. And I don't know how you feel, Janine. You've been doing this for a long time, but, you know, like, uh, I, at times I feel hopeful in the sense of, like, that we're actually having this debate, you know, and actually I hate to see Nicole Hannah-Jones struggling just to get tenure, but there is a public fight happening. Absolutely. You know? I think you know? we're I think we're ahead of where we've been. I think we've got a lot of... Uh, forces that we can marshal as we push forward. Yeah, so that's what we're trying to do with Media 2070. And we have this press briefing for Media 2070 and with the new Tulsa Star, which is a new platform for covering the community. So there's a lot of folks doing amazing work out there, you know, amazing journalists who are doing justice-based journalism, like movement-based journalism. And so there is a lot of folks who are trying to use journalism for a force of good. And of course, a lot of journalists of color and black journalists who work at our major media institutions who are doing their best against tough cultural circumstances within their newsrooms. Absolutely. To continue to make sure these stories are told. All the stories we're seeing now, is, which is a good thing about Tulsa, is because folks are really advocating in newsrooms to uh, also make sure the story is not forgotten. We've been speaking with Joseph Torres. He's Senior Director of Strategy and Engagement at the group Free Press and co-author of the Necessary book, News for All the People. His piece on Tulsa is up on freepress.net. Joe Torres, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you, Janine. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The website's also the place to learn about FAIR's newsletter extra, to sign up for our Action Alert Network, and to show support for the show if you're so inclined. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin.